I'm Reagan Rose, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? The biggest music event of last year, for the first time in a long time, wasn't the Super Bowl. It was a concert that took place in a video game, Fortnite, and it was with a rapper named Travis Scott. And this just highlights the fact that video games are huge. I mean, if you read the New York Times, you might get a few reviews of Broadway plays that no one goes to, but you'll see nothing about reviews of video games or how we should think about video games. And this is despite the fact that they are absolutely enormous. They are taking up hours and hours and hours of everyday people's time. Now, Christians, we're really no different. We have not done well thinking deeply about video games. I remember when I was a kid, there was the Columbine shootings, and people said maybe they were inspired by a first-person shooter called Doom. And really past that, though, I don't hear Christians say much about video games or think much about it beyond just either I like them or they're dumb and they're a waste of time. And so that's why I'm excited to have on today Reagan Rose. He's the author of a book called A Student's Guide to Gaming, and it's a really practical book that's actually thinking deeply about how Christians should engage with video games. Obviously, it's targeted more towards teenagers, but the simple reality is that the gaming audience isn't just teenagers. It's people in their 20s and 30s and even up into their 40s. And so this is something that we all have to think about. He also has a podcast called Redeeming Productivity, where he talks about how to, as it says, redeem productivity, become more productive Christians for the glory of God. His podcast is great. I would encourage you to go listen to it. Check it out. You're going to get a lot of good stuff for your life. It's not really about gaming at all. It's about how you spend your time. But today we're going to focus on a topic that he's actually thought deeply about, which is video games. So let's hop in. Reagan, it's great having you on the show. Thanks for being here today. Hey, Patrick. It's great to be here, brother. (laughs) So we are going to talk about video games. I think this is a fascinating topic. And I think maybe the best place for us to start is with our earliest experiences with gaming. And I'll just go first, and then you can hop in. Yeah, it sounds good. So my first experience with a video game, I have a very distinct memory of this, was going to a friend's house. I don't even remember the friend. This is the crazy part. All I remember is the video game. (laughs) I went to a friend's house, and this is going to sound creepy. He's like, hey, man, you want to go down into my basement? And I was like, yeah, dude, (laughs) let's go. So we go down there, and he's got an NES, you know, the original Nintendo, and he switches it on, and inside of it is Super Mario Brothers, the very first Super Mario Brothers game on that console. And he gave me the controller, and he's like, press this one to jump, press this one to move around. And it was just this 
I can't describe the experience. It was the feel of controlling something. I mean, it's kind of like driving a car or something like that. This feel of controlling something on a screen. And I'd never done it before. And it was, you know, it was lightning. Like, it's like, whoa, this is super cool. I've never experienced this. And I didn't have a game console for a long time. Like, I think I was maybe in second or third, maybe even fourth grade. It was like mid, late elementary before I even had a console. So my experience with gaming as a kid was always going to friends' houses and playing video games. What about you, though? It's funny. It's like nearly the same story. Yours was in a basement? It wasn't in a basement. (laughs) It was upstairs. My neighbor, my next door neighbor, they had gotten an original NES and literally the first game I played was Super Mario. It was the one where the cartridge had Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. It was like both games on the same cartridge. And so I remember going over there to their house and playing both of those games. And I liked Duck Hunt a lot more because you're like shooting stuff. And I remember getting in trouble because I took the little light gun and I was right up against the TV and I was like touching because I was a little kid and I was touching the TV and they're like, you're going to break the TV. And I was like, oh, sorry. You know, that's the way to cheat on Duck Hunt, right? If you brought the gun close up to the screen and you fire oh, exactly. it, it kills everything. Yeah. Right in one shot. <laughs> That's what it's I was doing. So right away, when I played my first video game, I was already cheating at them. So it was, it was good. <laughs> You're already smarter than it. Okay, so let me ask you this. What are some of your all-time favorite video games? Yeah, I'll give you two sets. I love the Halo series, especially Halo 2 and 3, like going online with Xbox Live. Like that was a huge game changer, being able to play against real People. Okay, hold on. Can I ask you a question around Halo? Did yeah. you ever do the LAN party thing? So like when I was in high school, all my friends would bring their original Xboxes. We'd all bring our own TVs. We'd put them all in the basement and you'd have to have different teams in different parts so people weren't screen peeking and you'd yeah, like play against looking, each other. Yeah. Dude, my basement was set up at my mom's house where we had two couches facing opposite directions and TVs hanging from the rafters in two Xboxes just for LAN parties. Like we literally set up the basement Dude. for Halo 2 LAN parties. So we were all about it. You had the coolest mom in the world. (laughs) That's what I I just learned. We were doing. (laughs) Assuming you didn't buy the televisions and hang them. (laughs) Someone was funding your little addiction down there. That's right. (laughs) Any other favorite games? Oh, yeah. So another one was an MMORPG, which was, it's still around, I think, RuneScape, which I'm kind of embarrassed to say because it was pretty lame. I played the original one, like before it was all like 3D and stuff, and it was terrible. But many hours of my life went into that game. So those two were like the big ones for me that I put a ton of time into. What about you? What are some of your favorite all-time games? Yeah, uh, you know, I think probably the game I played the most as a kid was actually Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, the Nintendo 64 Zelda. It was kind of a game changer when it came out. No one had ever seen a game like it. And I had a tradition. This is, again, maybe a little embarrassing to admit. I had a tradition basically from maybe fifth grade onward of beating that game at least once a year, probably until I was like a sophomore in college. It was like, okay, now's the time where I go and I beat this game. I mean, I just had it memorized backwards and forwards. I absolutely loved it. So that was one of my all-time favorites. I've also been a big fan of some of those older Japanese role-playing games. So like the Final Fantasy series. And here's what's really interesting because I think it'll relate to our conversation. The very first game I ever really played on my own and beat was Final Fantasy VII. And at the time, I was a middle schooler. I was a total lame No one liked me. No one talked to me. And my experience playing this game was really profound because it's this game that has all these characters in it who are kind of building friendships. They don't like each other at first, but they kind of come to learn how to live together alongside each other and do something great together. And at the time, that's like what I was deeply longing for. I was longing for friendships that I could do something significant with. And it was telling the story 
that I wanted to be true in my own life. So that's another one that I would point to as kind of a all-time favorite that my mind will go back to if I think about my favorite video games. We've both chosen things from like the 90s and early 2000s, so. Yeah, well, I think it is interesting because it's so formative. Hmm. I have memories of being in the game. You know what I mean? I was thinking about that the other day about like, I have really distinct memories of things that happened while playing games. And I don't oh, remember yeah. what my body was doing. Sometimes I don't even remember what room of the house I was in. The memories from the game and the stories that the games told, the experiences you had, a lot of them were formative, just like other memories to who I become as a person. So I definitely think it's an interesting phenomenon, especially in our generation, mm -hmm. because there is that gap between what our parents experienced. Like video games were relatively new, you oh, know, yeah. coming on the scene. Yeah, I remember my dad, when he first saw me playing video, he was like, oh, yeah, I had an Atari. I played Pong once. You know, it's like that is a totally different reality. Just like anybody listening to this, like you just mentioned games on like the PlayStation and N64 and Xbox. You know, they'd say, well, <laughs> what's happening today is radically different. Like it's totally different than that. And yet I totally agree with you. There's something incredibly immersive about playing a video game. And I do think that's what makes the genre unique. I mean, you can Think about everything we have, books, right? Like that's mostly a visual auditory experience in the sense that most people look at the book and then read the words in their head. So they're hearing something just not out loud unless they're doing an audiobook. Or you think about, you know, listening to music, like it's a fully auditory experience unless you're watching a music video, then you're getting video in. Or a TV show, which is video and audio, you know, you're seeing things and you're consuming things. I think what makes video games so unique is that it's taking that visual, auditory, immersive experience and it's creating a feedback loop between what you're seeing and hearing and what you're doing. Like all of a sudden you're entering into the ability to control what you're seeing on screen. And as an art form, that's really unique. There's nothing else like it. Yeah. yeah it's, insane. it's wild. So I get why it's formative. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things we wanted to talk about was how Christians have responded to video games in the past, like how they've been treated just generally, I guess. What have things you've seen, what have responses you've seen from Christians about video games? <laughs> I love this question. Let me ask you this. Did you grow up in youth group culture? Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, so can I ask you first, because I actually want to know, was playing video games just something that wasn't talked about or was it looked down upon? Because I can tell you what people said when I was in college after I became a Christian, but I really don't know the pre-that era version. Interesting. I think it probably depended on the youth group that you were in, because I remember visiting my friends' churches and there's a bunch of video game consoles like along the back wall, you know, they're just like, hey, kids love it. Let's throw it in here. <laughs> can I confess we have some video game consoles in our church? Are you judging me now? <laughs> yeah, really hard. <laughs> no, I'm not. I think for me, there was kind of a mix. We did video games. We had events with video games, you know, especially as we got older and the games got more popular and stuff. But you definitely got blowback and especially more in general, maybe Christian culture. Like I always had this sense that it was kind of like a time waster or it's childish or it's just that's a dumb thing to be spending your time on or the stuff about violence, the association with video games for violent kids, that kind of stuff. You always got those vibes. I totally remember that though, from like the Columbine era, you know, when that first school shooting happens and it comes out that these guys were super into this kind of cult classic video game called Doom, which is still around. And that that was in some people's minds, that's what led them to go and do the school shooting. We now have a lot of history between now and then to show pretty definitively that actually video games and violence 
don't really lead people to violence. Like there's like bizarro stories you can come up with with like a 14 year old stabbing his 77 year old grandma because she took away his video game system. It's like, well, dude, that dude's a psychopath. Like it's not video games. Like he lacked a conscience. Something was fundamentally (laughs) wrong there. But I remember the violence thing. But you said childish. Tell me more about that. I think I definitely encountered this objection more as you grow older, you know, like into high school and into college. Mm -hmm. It's like, why are you playing games? Games are for kids. You know, it's like, why are you watching cartoons or why are you collecting toys? Like in that sort of thing, like you need to move on from that. That's just kid stuff. You need to be more about the real world. But what's funny is that criticism was reserved just for this type of entertainment. You'd even hear it from a guy who spends all Sunday binging football. It's like, well, what's the difference, you know? And so (laughs) I think what's interesting, Patrick, I think the conversation around video games very much was shaped, at least in my experience, from the question about like time wasting and then most specifically about the violence thing, such that I think a lot of people have just moved on from it. They're like, video games don't cause violence. So what is there to talk about? The question was oversimplified in a lot of people's minds. Like video games aren't bad. Therefore, let's stop talking about it. Like, who cares? You know? And I think that there's more to think through with it. And that's why I ended up doing this book because I became very addicted to video games and like couldn't stop playing. And so my question was not are video games bad or good, but like, why are they so fun? Like, why (laughs) is it that I can't like binge read a book? Why can I not watch TV for that long? There's nothing else like being fully immersed in a game. I could play forever. And so that was the thing that captured me. I was like, why is it that I love this so much? What's that tell me about my heart? What's that tell me about what I was designed for? What does that tell me about the meaning of life? Deeper questions than good or bad. Can I ask you a question? Because the video game addiction thing is a really interesting topic. So I have two questions for you. One, you know, you said, hey, video games are addictive in a different way than other things. And my first question there is how much of that is personal to you? Yeah. To you, playing a video game is profoundly addictive, but to someone else, it's a different experience. For them, it might be scrolling on Instagram or it might be binge watching television shows. Like there's a lot of other things they could easily be addicted to. Or just hard drugs, you know? Yeah, or just cocaine, you know? Like, (laughs) yeah, just coke, yeah. uh, (laughs) No, but seriously, do you think that's because of how you're personally wired? And there's a subset of this question, which is are there just certain personalities that are more prone to addiction than others? And so they're going to find anything to get addicted to. And so it's like, let's not make video games the enemy. Let's talk about the real thing, which is addictive personalities and your desire to spend too much time on one thing. That's a great question. I definitely think that I am given to video game addiction. I think that there's something particularly in my wiring such that if I'll play with friends or something, rare occasions, but I don't prescribe this to anybody. This is just a me thing. Like I have tried to play in moderation. I don't play games anymore. I can't put them on my computer because it will steal my life. So I know that's a me thing. But with that being said, I also know that the research out there does show that it's a generalized phenomenon. The DSM-5 has a category for online video game addiction. The World Health Organization added something to their documents about it, that there is a phenomenon of video game addiction that I think is very similar to social media addiction. The process of needing that dopamine hit of something new, something fresh, it definitely is a more widespread phenomenon than it used to be. So I do think that some people, they'll play games, never have an issue with it. Other people, they'll be like me and get totally sucked into it. The analogy I use is just, it's like alcohol, for example. I don't think drinking alcohol is a sin, but I would be dumb to not treat it with care. Don't think it's bad. Don't write it off. 
just be like, okay, let's approach this with discernment. Let's just think about this. And there's nothing there that could suck you in the same way you would with any technology. So this is helping me as we're processing through it. I was, I was reading it in a psychiatric journal, it was a recent article, and it was estimating that anywhere, and this is a big number in my opinion, <laughs> anywhere from 10 to 15% of people who play video games regularly might qualify as having some sort of addiction hmm. by various standards. I mean, everybody defines addiction differently. Now, to me, that's both a big and a small number. It's like, wow, like that means one out of every 10. That's not small. Those yeah. are low odds. On the other side, I do wonder... Is this any different? Here's my constant pushback with people. I know a lot of men who hopefully the time they get home from church <laughs> to the end of the day on Sunday, watch football. And this is just a part of their life, right? Their wife accepts it. Their children accept it. Maybe they've got a son or a daughter who's kind of participating in them, but this is just totally okay, right? Like I can sit here and watch these football games for six, seven hours. And I have a hard time personally differentiating between that and a guy who goes home and plays video games for seven hours. In fact, in some ways, I would say the video game is less passive <laughs> than sitting yeah. in front of the television watching the football game. So do you think those are different things or how are they different? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think they're both equally, however you want to say it, bad or good. They're, if you're overindulging, and that's something we'd have to define, I guess. Mm, if you're yeah. spending a whole bunch, an inordinate amount of time such that you're neglecting your other responsibilities, other things you ought to be doing on any form of entertainment, something's wrong. Like something is wrong. A correction needs to be made. Yeah. I think that the discussion around video games, I'll put it this way. When I was very, very addicted to video games and had no intention of stopping, I would use as an excuse for that addiction, well, look, other people are addicted to other forms of entertainment. You know, and I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but that's not a valid that's argument. That's a terrible argument. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I can do this too. And I think you're right. It's like, you can't justify. Here's my point is, I guess why I'm bringing this up, and I think you're pushing back in a good way. To me, it feels like the more fundamental discussion is what you just brought up, which is about how much entertainment is healthy for me to have in my life. How much does this entertainment form impinge upon my life responsibilities? So that might be my relational responsibilities to a wife, to children, if you have kids or you're married, to my job responsibilities, if I'm working, to my home care responsibilities, if we have a home or apartment or something like that. Like that feels like a more fundamental and helpful conversation than focusing in on video games. But that's why I was asking, is there something different though, right? Is there something yeah. special about video games that we need to have a special caution for? And I think you've actually said some really good things here. It's like, hey, maybe there are some aspects of this that are more addictive or differently addictive that you have to be aware yeah. of. Can we talk about that differently addictive part and say like, what's different about it? And can I throw a proposal at you? Yes, let's hear it. I think you are really addicted to video games or you would be really addicted to video games if you started playing them because of your propensity for productivity. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know this was going to get personal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually the reverse of that. Okay. So there is a connection. I think I got into the productivity thing because it was almost an attempt to make up for, holy cow, I wasted the first 22 years of not, I didn't really waste 22 years. Some of that, I was a baby, <laughs> but I wasted so much time of my young adult years, so much time, just literally didn't leave the house. Like it was really bad, Patrick. And I think some of the productivity stuff was maybe even an overreaction of, whoa, I came to realize time is really precious. It's really important. I only have this life. Like I need to spend this well. I need to steward it well. I haven't been doing that. Let me get serious about it. And I think that seriousness just kept 
leading me down to, okay, how do I make sure I'm using every minute wisely? So I definitely think there's a relationship, but the way I think about it is I think it was the opposite is me running the opposite direction of saying, I don't really take my time seriously to maybe sometimes I take it too seriously now. Okay. Can I push back? Can I tell you why I said this crazy thing? Yeah. I think one of the unique things that makes video games uniquely addictive, especially particular kinds of video games. So MMORPGs, that's massive multiplayer online role-playing games. I think World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy XIV, RuneScape, which you already brought Don't up. forget RuneScape. <laughs> it's still around. It's still well-played. I looked up today some of the most well-played games. You know, any of these massive, you know, Fortnite isn't an MMORPG, but Call of Duty, these games that are played by a lot of people. Here's why I was arguing maybe that these things are interrelated, is what these games do is they put an objective in front of you that is challenging enough to be interesting, right? It's not just easy, you know, getting the headshot isn't easy to do, but it's not so hard that you can't do it, not with enough practice. And there's like a joy, there's a deeply human joy in putting your hands around something and being able to do it, right? Like this is what a woodworker's joy is to be able to take this raw piece of wood and turn it into something beautiful that it couldn't have been otherwise. There's something about developing skills and using those skills to do something productive. And so that's what the video game hits, right? So now not only do I get the headshot, but I get a score on a scoreboard. I get to compare myself to other people. Or if I'm in this MMORPG, I'm moving forward a quest line. I'm doing the next thing that's down the line. In other words, if you have an innate desire to be productive, to feel like you've accomplished something today, I've gone through my checkbox, I've done all the things, games really, really satisfy that deep down urge, especially particular kinds of games. And so I guess what I'm asking you is maybe your urges that have allowed you to become someone who's really invested in productivity were the exact same urges that allowed you to, you know, get addicted to video games. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something there for sure. And I do think that for people who do become addicted to video games, I think that's one of the things that's unique about the genre. Like, I believe that we were designed for what you said. We're designed for dominion, to overcome, to, you know, talks about in Genesis, God created us to rule, have dominion, you know, build something. So I think that deep down, there is this desire in all of us to, whether it's build something or overcome an obstacle or whatever it is, I think we're designed for that. And I think video games latch onto that desire in a very struct, all games do in a very structured way. A game, there's always going to be some obstacles, some objectives, something you're trying to do. But in a game, it's easier than real life. It's easier because the games have to be able to be beat. Otherwise, no one's going to play them. <laughs> and so it lays out this really structured path in front of you without the thistles and the thorns and the frustrations of real work. And this is where I think the appeal is if you're dissatisfied in your real life, you're not accomplishing things. You don't feel like you're overcoming. You don't feel like you're doing something of consequence. Here's this video game that offers you a way to experience some of that satisfaction and that joy and the reward of overcoming and doing that and feel like, yeah, I did something. This is awesome. And that's a cool thing. I think that's what makes them fun. The problem is it becomes easy to sort of like trick yourself and being like, okay, I like that feeling. I'm just <laughs> going to put more of my time into the fake thing. So I get more of that feeling. And that's where it becomes a shift from fulfilling responsibilities, doing something of consequence with your life and trading that out for something that ultimately you just move in numbers on a computer somewhere. Yeah, I think this is interesting. Let me change the metaphor for a second because I think that it's almost so obvious the case against video games that, hey, these can be a massive time waster that distract you from important things in your life, which we've already established is true of a lot more <laughs> than just video games. Sure. And yeah. so you have to start thinking through, you know, discerning how do I spend my time? Like how much time am I spending on social media? How much time do I spend watching TV at the end of the day? How much time do I watch football? Or, you know, and so I don't do fantasy football anymore, right? Like the amount of guys I know who love to pick on video gamers, and I'm like, you live 
literally spend hours a week on your fantasy football and you think you're better than those people, but like you both need to ask the same fundamental questions. But I do think we've narrowed in on what I do think makes video games unique. I mean, aside from the flashing lights and the looped interchange that is addictive in its own right, which is the productivity addiction, which is I feel like I'm accomplishing. Yeah. Now, here's where I would change the metaphor. What's the difference between that and reading a story? and engaging deeply in stories. I do think, like someone asked me, why do humans love telling stories? Why do I spend hours reading Harry Potter to my daughter or rereading The Lord of the Rings or going through the Chronicles? Whatever book series you love, what is it that's appealing? And I would argue that you might disagree that part of it is the exact same thing. It's I get to live vicariously through this character who is being productive and doing challenging things. But the only thing I have to be able to do is be a literate person. You know, I just have to read it. Do you think there's an overlap there? Do you think there's a difference there? Yeah, I definitely think there's an overlap. Any form of entertainment has an aspect of story to it. Even sports, you're like, what's the story? Well, it's Mm. the story of the good guys versus the bad guys every Mm -hmm. Sunday. I was reading a book recently by Donald Miller. He writes on business and story brand, all this stuff. And so I've read some of his stuff on story. And he was talking about how you're basically always living in a narrative. You have something going in your head. There's something you're chasing after. And any sort of entertainment, any sort of other story just gives you a second to turn off your own narrative. And he said something like, the only way to turn off the story in your head is to step into another story. And so there's something really appealing about that to sort of just escape for a minute and step into someone else's story. And that holds you and you want to see it through to the end. I think we're definitely designed for that. I just think video games are slightly different in the way you engage in it because of some of those immersive participatory aspects that you mentioned. Yeah. So let me ask you a follow-up to this. Someone tells you that they spend 10 hours a week reading fiction. Let's say it's not even like cruddy romance novels, right? But I will say this, and I want to get into this. I think part of our problem with video games is this nascent elitism. The New York Times is going to publish who knows how many articles about Broadway plays that literally no one will ever go to or care about, but they will not talk about the video (laughs) games that hundreds of millions of people are playing that are actually the cultural event (laughs) of the year. It's bigger than the Super Bowl. But let's just say someone spends 10 hours a week and they're reading fiction, good fiction, high quality fiction. Do you think that's different or superior to someone playing a video game for 10 hours a week? I, I picked a tricky number for you, by the way. This was intentional. Yeah. I'm making it hard. No, on that's you. good. Yeah. Because like yeah. 10 hours feels like I, a lot, but it's not a ton, yeah. depending on what you do. Yeah. I mean, because most of us probably spend way more than 10 hours on some form of entertainment, yep. right? Whether it's Netflix or whatever. I don't think it is in substance. I don't think so. What's funny is, is you asked that, like, if I'm being honest, I can feel myself wanting to say that the fiction thing is better. But why? I actually want to explore this because there's part of me that's, I'm a voracious reader, right? So there's part of me that wants to say, yeah. read the book, partially because it makes me feel better about myself, <laughs> right? Because I spend yeah. way, 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 way more time reading books than I do touching a video game. But I can be honest and also say there are plenty of times where my book reading causes a roadblock between my wife and I, right? Because I want to read something instead of hanging out at the end of the night. Or yeah. between me and my children, it's like they want to play with me, but I'm like, no, I'm going to fold laundry and listen to this audiobook because really I just want to be in the audiobook. And it's not just fiction. Like I read nonfiction, all different kinds of things. That's part of why I want to defend it is like, this is my juice, you know? And so I like it. But what are other reasons do you think that maybe we want to say books are different? I think that it's easier with a video game for 10 hours to turn into 15, 20 hours. There's something, at least for me, that is harder to regulate than book reading. I get, I know that's me, but it's almost like, I want to say because the book reading is harder or it stretches you to some degree, that that for some reason makes it better. You know what I mean? I kind of want to go the same route. Like this is why I'm thinking about this. I love reading now. I did not like reading as a middle schooler or high school. It's my junior year of high school. I found a copy of The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger on the ground. 
because I was kind of this emo indie kid. I thought it was romantic to like pick up a book and just read it like I found it. But it turns out the main character, you know, Holden Caulfield inside of it was me, this like angsty teenager who didn't know what to do with his life. And it was just like this profound experience of connecting with him and his story. But what really brought me through was up until reading that book, I could never imagine what I was reading in my mind's eye. Like I could not picture what was happening in the words on the page. Like I couldn't have the active enough imagination to be able to create it in my head and make those things real. And that's the active part of reading that I think actually sets it apart from television, from football, from video games, is there is this profoundly active part of your brain that has to function and work to make it work. That's really interesting. I have a three-year-old and he loves Thomas the Tank Engine. We let him watch the old show, the one with the toys or whatever. And there's a Thomas podcast. And between the two, we try to regulate his screen time. And between the two, we'd rather him listen to the podcast than the television show. And my wife and I have talked about like, why is that? And that's the explanation we've said. (laughs) Well, at least he's exercising his imagination. It's making him learn to do that. It's stretching for him. requires a little more effort. Well, there's studies about screen time with little kids, rewiring your brain. And obviously we're talking about adults. So I do something similar. My daughter's a little older, but I've been reading Harry Potter books to her. Yeah. And what I do when I get about halfway through the book is I show her the movie that's associated with it, which might sound terrible, right? Because now she knows the ending and everything else. But I actually see it as a way of almost giving her crutches to get her imagination there, right? So it's like I make her spend the first half having to imagine it. And then she gets the images and the pictures from the movie, which are for sure going to shape her imagination. But during the second half, she has those crutches. And so what I'm trying to develop in her is this capacity to take what she's seen somewhere else and bring it into the book. Yeah. There's like a synthesis. Exactly. I do think there's a value here. I don't want to be ridiculous and say video games are no different, but here's what's interesting. I think that if you compared 10 hours of video games to books, I think there's a good case to be made that the books are better. I think if you compare 10 hours of video games to 10 hours of television, Certain video games, I should be really clear, not all of them, I'm not talking about playing like Bejeweled or even Fortnite or these kind of like games (laughs) are just the same thing over and over and over and over again. I think that it might be a superior form of imagination and mental work than watching television. Do you mean because of the problem solving, like you're participating in it, that kind of stuff? Maybe it'll help to give an illustration of this from one of my favorite video games. Final Fantasy VII. So no one knows the story of that listening to this, but in the center of it, one of the main characters dies. And this is one of the first times in video games that like a main central character dies in the middle of the story. And it's this deeply moving emotional moment. But there's another main character who's like the real main character of the story. And he is on and off being controlled by this external force. And this external force is trying to make him kill his friend, this friend who is going to die. And right before this friend dies, there's this scene where you're controlling the main character and he's walking towards the character who's going to die, (laughs) like he's gonna kill her. In the midst of this scene, this is what's crazy, it can't progress unless you press a button. And you don't want to because you know he's going. He's going to go kill this character even though he doesn't want to go kill the character. But you can't go backwards. There's no going back from this. Any button you press moves him one step closer. And you don't want it. And you're like trying to stop. And guess what the character's doing on screen? He's shaking. Like he doesn't want to do it. And you don't want to do it. But you have to do it because you don't have a choice because you're being controlled by the game. It's like this meta moment of, yeah. Now I'm just using this as an example because I could just come up with five other examples at the top of my head of how games tell stories. In fact, let me give one more, like more recent one. A lot of people listening to us who play games have maybe played The Last of Us, which came out, I think, in 2010, 2011. Widely considered to maybe be the best video game that's ever been made. And if someone said, hey, if there's a game I should play, it's like, go play this game because it's profound. But the way it told a story, the story opens up and 
and you're in what seems like an empty house and you're a 13 year old girl. So like, that's already weird. Like starting off a game as a girl, like that's not normal in gaming world. And she starts exploring the house. She's looking for her dad. And as she's exploring, you just happen to see pictures of her and her dad. She finds this little gift that she gave him and it's slowly through the scene, building their relationship. And then you start hearing these crazy sounds outside. And all of a sudden her dad comes running in and he's covered in blood and he's terrified and he's yelling at her. We got to go. We got to go. And in the midst of this, like them trying to flee and you don't know what's happening. It's a zombie game. So like zombies start like coming out. You don't understand what's going on and you're trying to escape. And throughout it, it's forcing you to make these snap decisions that will save you. And you think, if you don't know anything about the game in this first 10 minutes, you are going to play as this girl for the rest of the game. But that's how most games work. <laughs> the first player you play as, that's who you are. And as the scene progresses and as you're escaping with your dad, as you're beginning to see his love and that he's a single dad and he's all about it, and you start feeling this like deep connection, it all climaxes in a scene where you all of a sudden switch to the role of the dad and you have to try to protect but fail to protect your daughter from getting shot and killed. And this all happened hmm. in about 13 minutes and I cried like a baby. It was one of the most deeply moving. I might be a father with a daughter, but like you want to yeah. as the player protect this girl who you've now connected with and you don't want her to die, then there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so I'm saying also to say like there's a unique form of storytelling and engagement that happens in yeah. certain kinds of video games, story-based video games. It's not childish. There's something profound here that we should wrestle with that moves you in a different way. So I'm sorry, I just talked for way too long, but is it better? No, I think that's totally <laughs> fair. I agree with you. I think video games are the most superior form of storytelling. Like I used to say, I went to film school many, many years ago. And I used to say the reason I enjoyed film was because you don't just control the story, you control the pace that the story is told that. In a book, I can stop reading, you know? But when it's film, I could control what's on the screen and how quickly things unfold. And that's really powerful. When you add the element of participation to storytelling, then it's just wild. You're in it. And I definitely think it's a great way to tell stories. I just think it's a double-edged sword. The things that are the best about video games that make them so fun, that make them so entertaining, that make them like such a great media for storytelling are also the things that tempt you to maybe do too much. Or, you know, back to maybe the violence question, I think there is not with making people become violent, but I think there is something kind of messed up in some games about you participating in abject violence. I'm not talking about a first-person shooter, like a game where you're competing or something. One that always jumps to my mind, Grand Theft Auto V, where you literally can just, for no reason, just go around and beat people with a bat. It's not even the mission. It's not part of the story. You can just engage in this urge to do violence to innocent people. And even if that has no bearing on whether you actually do violence in real life, there's something pretty soul-twisting about the ability to act that out, even in fake world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that is really interesting. So if one of the problems is that everybody's got a productivity problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> Another yeah. problem is we have to become media literate to evaluate media. And yes. I try to talk to Christians about it. They either think it's childish or they just are kind of going to defend their little addiction or thing that they're doing. No, what I was just doing there is I'm trying to talk about what's happening in this story and how is it functioning. Like you need that literacy to understand this isn't a childish medium. It's a profound storytelling medium. It's no better than watching Netflix or reading a book, though it's different than both those things. And now I think you're kind of going into a third area, which is how do we evaluate violence? And specifically with all of these, we could even say every video game is going to be different. One of the problems is we talk about video games. It's like what I just said. I find those games that tell profound and deep stories far less addictive 
than yeah. playing Overwatch or a Call of Duty or something like that. I don't play those games in part <laughs> because I can't turn it off because it's the constant feedback loop of getting my results and beating people or losing. Mm-hmm. It keeps me in. Whereas these games that are more story-based, they're doing something different. And now you bring up a different thing, which is how do we evaluate what happens inside of the games themselves? Like, Are there forms of violence which are appropriate and inappropriate. So you made an interesting distinction there. You're like, if the violence is gratuitous, totally unnecessary for the story or the game, then it feels gross. But well, in a first person shooter, that's different. How do we wrestle through that? When is the violence okay or not okay? And we're not going to come up with a black and white answer, but let's just explore it. Here's how I think about it. I'll just give my opinion to make an analogy with movies. I think there's a difference between watching a war movie and part of it is that people die. Someone gets shot, they die versus there's a name for these, but it's the subgenre of horror that's basically... Torture porn. Yeah, it's how awful and creatively can this person die? How gory can it be? And in fact, there's a chapter in the book that's called Don't Glory in the Gore. And that I think is a difference. And it's a difference that's going on inside of you with how you're thinking about it. Obviously with a movie versus a video game, you're just watching it, but you're being entertained by the gore itself versus the storyline that has death and things that are part of it. I think that there is a difference there. And obviously you can't boil that down in an Excel spreadsheet and say, well, how much is too much? That's what we always want to do, right? We want to make it uh, legalistic. But I think with games, the same difference applies. You have to shoot to win. You have to eliminate the other team. It's mock war versus in this game, you're just killing innocent people. You're torturing them. It's not even part of the plot. It's just literally you acting out some base, awful, violent desire. I think there's something twisted about that. There's a verse, Psalm 11, 5. It says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And that's always stuck with me. There's violence in the Bible. There's people who are men of war, but man, he hates the soul of the one who loves violence. I don't want to love violence. I don't want to love gore. I don't want that to be the thing that I'm like, oh yeah, show me more blood. And I think that's the difference. In some games, just like some movies, that's the thing that's supposed to be the source of the entertainment, the gore itself. Here's what I love about what you did there is that you brought two things together again in a helpful way, which is what's happening in the game and what we're consuming on the game. We should think through in the exact same ways we think through what happens in movies. Now, most Christians I know are terrible at this, right? right? They have zero discernment about what they watch on television. There's kind of this attitude where it's like, if you're under the age of 18, I think it actually ironically came about because of our rating system. One of these negative side effects is like by putting ratings on things and saying, this is inappropriate for people under the age of 17. Somehow Americans drew the conclusion, therefore anything, if I'm above the age of 18, is appropriate. (laughs) Dude, I think you're 100% right. That's a really funny observation. That's brilliant. I think it's so true. That's how we think about laws, right? Like we want clear, we want black and white. And the amount of Christians who don't think through like, is this torture porn that I'm watching? Like, what is this doing to my soul? How is this shaping my desires, my longings, what I see as being beautiful, right, good, true, and just? How is this malforming it? You brought up another example. If I'm watching a war movie, Often war movies actually don't glorify violence. They do the exact opposite. So here's an interesting example, Squid Game. Now, I don't know if you watch Squid Game. I haven't seen it, but I know what it is. It got a lot of trash because people said, look, this is another one of these torture porn things. Like the whole thing is watching people die and get bloody. I watched the first episode with a friend because I was curious about it. I thought we'd do a little show on it and talk about it. Now, I am actually very discerning with what I watch. I don't watch horror movies. I don't watch Quentin Tarantino movies. Like I don't like the murder porn. It's not my thing. Maybe I shouldn't have watched it. Anyways, here's the point. I watched the show and what I found fascinating about it was that it does not glorify violence. 
violence in the show is not designed to make you say, oh yeah, this is awesome. It's to make you say, this is sickening. And by putting it in the context of all these metaphors about capitalism and classism, it's telling you something about what's happening in your own world. I thought this is a really interesting way of telling a story that actually pushes your heart in the right direction. This is evil. This is wrong. I don't want anything to do with it. And so I do wonder like to what degree that plays into video games. And I think that's what you're getting at. Oh, I think that's so good. I always thought it was funny in the rating system for movies that they would rate it based on drug references. And I always thought that's funny because it's like, is it a negative or a positive reference? Are they saying drugs are good or drugs are bad? Like, how are you going to rate a movie R because it said drugs were bad? That makes no sense at all. That's the trouble with trying to quantify this stuff, though, I think. And I don't know what it is about us that makes us want to reduce everything down to laws. Okay, what is the exact thing? How close can I get to the line? The book I did is written towards young people mostly. But what I tried to do was come alongside as like kind of an older brother and say, hey, I get it. I like games too. I don't think they're bad. Let's, instead of trying to quantify and say, where's the line? Let's look inward and say, why is it that they're so enjoyable? What can that tell us about our hearts? What can that tell us about what we were made for? And let's evaluate the games based on that. Does this game and how much I'm playing it and all of that, does that help me? to live a life that's more God-honoring? Or does that hinder me from it? Like, stop thinking in terms of, I can go right up this line and no further. Start thinking in terms of, is this making me more like Christ? Is this making me more holy? Is this a wise use of my time? Starting with the heart instead of, are people going to judge me for this or that kind of thing? I think it's maybe valuable to say this. Christians have, going back to the Westminster Confession, (laughs) had a, I think, a bad relationship with not just entertainment, but with play. (laughs) Like back in the Westminster, in their rules about keeping Sabbath, they ban recreation. You can have your Sabbath day, but there's no recreation allowed. Which is funny. That's ironic. (laughs) And so a lot of pastors, at least in my denomination, they have to take vows and they have to say, you know, I'm upholding the Westminster, but then you take exceptions. You say, what's something that I don't agree with inside of the Westminster? Almost every pastor takes the recreation one. And I think they do it for good reason. It's because God designed us to be physical creatures who take joy in his creation. And that doesn't just mean going out into nature. That means creation includes all the culture making that we do collectively. And so one of the things is I think someone can hear this and say, well, there's no way that me playing video games is going to make me more godlike. And I'd say, well, actually, I think God wants you to enjoy the good things that he's made, the good things that he's created. He wants you to appreciate the culture that his human image bearers have created and to enjoy it. The question is, what are the forms I can enjoy? What are the manner in which I can enjoy? Yeah. Are there things I shouldn't? Like if this is a hyper-realistic video game where there's tons of blood spatter and gore. And here's what's crazy. Most video games these days, you can change that. Yeah, it's funny. You can turn that off, isn't it? I'm like, hey, do you turn off the blood? Do you turn it down? The funny thing is like, it's even inside your control in some circumstances and we won't affect it. I'm going to ask you one last question here because you're the guy who wrote the book. Can you give me an example of a healthy relationship with video games? Yeah, I would say playing them in moderation, the same amount that you might do another form of entertainment, a responsible level. I'm not going to put an hour limit on it, but... If you're playing video games instead of watching TV, I don't see the issue. The issue comes when it starts to interfere with other responsibilities, when you start to isolate yourself from other people, you know, instead of watching TV with somebody, you're playing video games by yourself, and that's the only thing you do. I think a healthy relationship is choosing good games with discernment that are edifying, they're helpful, that are entertaining, they're fun, and playing them with a moderate use of time and not overdoing it. I think I'd have a hard time disagreeing with anything you just said there. I mean, I will say, like, 
I'm an obsessive personality, so this can create its own set of problems. Five years ago, I got super into Johann Sebastian Bach, and like all I did was listen to Bach's music. All I did was read books about Bach. Another Bach addict. Oh, I hate <laughs> I'm not, you, I'm Bach not kidding. For about a year and a half, that's all I did. I mean, I was just so deep, and I just know this about myself, you know? And I don't think it's a bad thing. I view it as like, hey, like I was enjoying the beauty of this one person's creation, and I don't think it was yeah. a bad thing at all to go deep. Now, of course, it can go too far, and usually that doesn't happen to me, thankfully. But recently, I've kind of experienced something similar with video games, where I've kind of said, you know, I want to understand this art form. Like, I want to understand how this thing works. And mm -hmm. the more I've gotten into it, the more that I've explored it, the more I've thought, there's some really beautiful story-making, storytelling power. I'm not saying it's true of all video games, or it's true across the board, and I understand that it can be abused, but I really think that there's a place for Christians to start appreciating video games more, in part because there's this giant gamer community out there that has no place in the church because they know the minute they show up, they're just going to have a bunch of Mark Driscoll's out there telling them video games aren't sinful, they're just stupid. You know, it's like, okay, well, now that you've called me dumb, I'm ready to go back home to my atheist gamer community, which most of them are, right? And so that's the other part here is like, there's an evangelistic aspect to this, there's an art appreciation aspect to this. And there's everything I think you said about evaluating content and productivity and all those things. And so I just wonder, can we hold all these things together and figure out like a healthy way <laughs> for gamers to game? I hope so. I hope so. It's so funny, Patrick, because I wrote a Christian book on video games. People often assume I'm the anti-video game guy, which is funny. Just immediately they're like, oh, you wrote your Christian book on video games. That must be because you hate video games. Like, I don't hate video games. I love video games. I want to know why I love them. What's good about them? And I want to be discerning about the stuff where there's potential issues there. And it's not useful. It's not helpful to just browbite people over it. When I talk to young people, especially about this, I just want to come from a big brother perspective. I love it too. And this is what I tell parents too. And I know adults play video games too, but I talk to parents about this. Like, well, what do I do? My kid plays a lot of video games. Like, have you played it with them? Play the games with them. If you want to figure out how to talk to your kid about gaming and what they're playing, all that, just play with them. One, it's good to spend time with your kid. <laughs> Two, you'll understand it. You'll say, oh, I get it. And you see parents that are gamers versus parents that aren't, that have kids that play games, totally wildly different approaches to it. There's a little bit more sensitivity and there's a little bit more open ability to communicate when you actually know what you're talking about instead of criticizing it as an outsider. And that's probably true of anything. Yeah, and I think that's great advice for parents. It feels like all the normal things about screen time and putting screens in front of your kids is something you have to wrestle with with video games. It's the same with cell phones, with TV, with all those deals. And that would be another great podcast to discuss. And I sincerely hope everybody listening to this reads your book because I totally agree with you. I didn't feel like you were browbeating anyone, that you were mocking anyone, or that you had a bad spirit in it. I think you're asking really important questions. And, you know, I could, not on every chapter, but on a lot of chapters, I'll be honest, I think I could swap out video games for television or for a number of other things out there. And a lot of people would benefit from reading it on that level. <laughs> and so I'm really grateful that you've been on the show with me today and that we've gotten a chance to chat about this. I know I've learned something. It's fun to talk with someone who's gracious in conversation as you're kind of pushing back. So thanks for being on today. And again, I hope anyone listening to this picks up that book. Now, Patrick, this has been super fun and I appreciate the pushback and coming at it from slightly, although it seems like not all that different directions, but slightly different perspectives and to really talk about this stuff deeply, because I don't think it's something we can just nail down and say, here's the right way. It's something we got to think about. And that happens through talking and conversing, especially with people that don't share your exact view. And we all sharpen one another. So appreciate you, brother. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. 
Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.